0: Open your Bibles with me to book of Acts, chapter 16. We are setting this book in the Bible, in the New Testament. Book of Acts it was written by a guy named Luke, who was a physician, a doctor. And he wrote it to a guy named Theophilus. Theophilus. And uh, what we're doing is we're just going through this book, verse by verse, And we're talking about various things, but more than anything else, two things for us to notice as we look at this book. First and foremost, in one level, it chronicles the early beginnings of Christianity, early beginnings of the Christian movement. And so we're getting glimpses of what the early church was like, which has some application for us as we are a church here in the 21st century about how to go about living our lives. But the more important thing, as we've been talking about since we've come back from summer break, is that essentially the book is about the mission that God is on, right? The mission that God is on, that God is a God of mission who is at work. Whether we know it or not, whether we see it or not, whether we believe it or not, our creator God is at work bringing men and women to himself and to restore and renew all of creation, So the book of Acts has sort of these two levels, and we've been looking at it. So today we come again to Acts chapter 16, starting at verse 30. We saw a portion of this last week, and today we're going to finish this chapter. Verse 16, verse 13. Chapter 16, verse 13. On Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. Do you like that? Do you you like that verse right there? The Lord opened her heart. Isn't that encouraging? That's encouraging, right? The Lord opened her heart. They didn't do it. Paul and Silas didn't do it. God did. Verse 15, when she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. This girl followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. And finally, Paul became so troubled that he turned around and said to the Spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the Spirit left her. When the owners of the slave girl realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. Verse 20. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and they're throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening to them. Amazing, absolutely amazing. Verse 26, suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundation of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everybody's chains came loose. The jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We're all still here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them and asked, Serge, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his family were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole family. That is the word of the Lord. And some of us come from traditions where we say, thanks be to God. Um, oh, there's just a big chunk of passage here. There's so much here. But, but I want to pick up where we left off last week, which is uh, you need to know that Christianity, Christianity, essence of Christianity, says that God is not about moral reformation, but about transformation. You need to know that Christianity is not, main, not what a culture thinks sometimes when we think of Christianity. Christianity, by the way, I say this a lot on Sundays because we have Buddhists, we have atheists, we have people that are agnostic, we have people that have grown up in church, walked away, don't know what Christianity is really about, and so they're here. So I say this, and, and it's very important. Essence of Christianity is not that you become a better person. Essence of Christianity is that you you don't become a more moral person. Essence of Christianity, the gospel, is not that Jesus takes, you know, bad people and makes them good people and takes good people and makes them better people, so on and so forth. No, the gospel says, check this out, that God takes dead people, spiritually dead people, and that he makes them live. Spiritual transformation. Okay? Why is that important? Because our culture, we're obsessed with makeovers, right? Our culture. And our culture thinks that Christianity, spirituality is about a spiritual makeover. I'm sorry, but Christianity is not about spiritual makeover, no matter how good the makeover is. Spiritual essence of Christianity is a spiritual start over. It's it's, it's like taking you from scratch and making you new again. How does it happen? How does that happen? What it happens when we, and Paul says to the jailer here, you notice in verse 31 and 32, believe on the Lord Jesus. You notice that? It, it, believing on the Lord Jesus or believing in God. And I and may stop right here again and, and talk about this. Because again, our culture, we say, what does it mean to believe in Jesus or believe in God? We have all kinds of notions of what that means, right? So I want to take a little bit of time and go over what, god has to say if you are not a christian this is what it means to be a christian if you are a christian you need to pay very careful attention for two reasons number one what i'm about to do with you you need to do to your non-christian friends what i'm about to talk about you need to be able to talk about with your non-christian friends when they say what does it mean to believe in jesus secondly Believing in Jesus and what the Bible talks about, essence of the gospel, is not something that we just do one time and we become a Christian and we move on to bigger and better things, you know? What we're going to talk about is sort of the ABCs of Christianity. No, what I'm going to talk about is what renews you every day. What I'm going to talk about right now, if you're a Christian, you don't just check out and go, I get that. I know what it means to be a Christian. I, I believe, I, I, I move on. No, no, no. What What I'm talking about today, we talk about this in our church a lot, every single day of your life, this is what will change you, transform you. You You got me? What does it mean to believe in the Lord? Here's what it does it does not mean. Believing in the Lord Jesus does not mean act better, be more moral, learn to obey the rules better. Go to church, read your Bible, pray more. Believing in the Lord Jesus does not mean I feel really bad for some things that I've done and so therefore I'm going to, you know, really, really feel bad and my attitude will be different. Believing in the Lord Jesus does not mean any of those things. Believing in the Lord Jesus does not mean be more moral, be better, you know, believe the right things even. Although that's important. Believing in the Lord Jesus means... That we are so bad at doing right, acting right, being moral, being good. We are so bad at following God, doing the things he calls us to, that Jesus Christ himself had to come. Lived the life we should have lived. Perfect, sinless, righteous life. Died the death we should have died for our rebellion, for our disobedience, for our sins. So that. When we place our, check this out, trust in him, and I'll talk about that, believe in him, the life that he lived, perfectly for for righteous life, becomes ours in such a way that God looks at us as he sees his son Jesus. So we say this in our church. Believing in Jesus, trusting in Jesus results in this. Although right now we are more wicked and more sinful than we dared believe, in Christ, in Christ, we are more accepted and more loved than we dared hope at the same time. Okay? Trusting, believing in Jesus means more than anything else. We approach God not by acting better, doing more good things more. We approach God on the basis of and through Christ and his work of redemption. Amen? Believing in Jesus means that we approach God, not with a bunch of things that we've done and saying, God, look at the life I live. Now you owe me. Believing in Jesus Christ means we approach God and saying, there was absolutely nothing that I could have done to earn or merit salvation. So I come to you solely based on the work of Christ, his life on my behalf and his death on my behalf. It's believing that, embracing that on a daily basis. Now, let me tell you why that's important. Because here's the other aspect of what it means to believe and and trust. Every single one of us, Christian or not, we have something that is the real trust of our lives. It's our salvation. It's our identity. It's our significant. It's that thing that we look to. It's that thing that we go to every single day of our lives to say, "That's why I can live today. That's why I'm significant. That's why I have an identity. That's who I am. That's what makes me." We all have this thing. That's the real trust of our lives. Uh, have you noticed? You know what I love these days? I love a, I love the fact that there are more Asians on TV. Anybody notice? Am I watching Flash Forward? Flash Forward. Uh-huh. A black woman and an Asian man. He's Korean, by the way. I, lo- John Cho. I love that. I love that, right? The whole, you know, Kumar goes to White Castle, whatever that thing was. That was just horrible. That was just horrible. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, you've saved yourself like an hour and a half of your day. You'll never get back. Okay. So, so there's just, now, uh, I, I love seeing no, the other person is uh, uh, Christina, character Christina on Grey's Anatomy. Anybody fan of Grey's Anatomy? Oh, confess, you know, you watch Grey's Anatomy. All right. We don't judge in our church. It's like nighttime. soap opera is what it is. My wife and I love that show. We're glued to the television every Thursday nights, Christina. Tr- there's a scene, by the way, if you don't know what Grey's Anatomy is, Grey's Anatomy is about a bunch of doctors in Seattle. Okay. So it's a bunch of surgeons, but there's this one scene, Christina. She's by the way, Korean also, right? Uh, I'm just saying, I'm just saying, right? I'm just saying, uh, so, so there's this one scene. Christina, her character, her character is, she is, she's the go-getter, right? She's cutthroat. I mean, she wants to be the best surgeon in the hospital and she's willing to step over anybody, right? There's this one scene. What's that? She's Korean, yes. That's why. <laughs> So there's a scene, right? So, so, so there's a scene. The hospital's going through a merger, right? So their jobs are at stake, so on and so forth. So there's one scene. Christina goes to one of the head doctors, and she's making her case for why she should stay and not get fired. And this is what she says. She says, you don't understand. God created these hands, these hands to be the surgeon. I, I, I need to be here. This is, this is my salvation. I was born to do this. This is my salvation. You sit there and and, and all of us at one level go, oh, yeah, I know what that's like. Because every single one of us has something at the center of our being. That's our real trust. It's the thing that we say, like Christina, that's my salvation. For some of us, it's our jobs. It's our relationship. It's that we're good. It's that we're moral. It's that whatever it is, every single one of us has something at the center that is a real trust that is the God of our lives. And what it means to believe in Jesus, to place our trust in him, listen, is you look at that thing that is the real trust of your life right now, and you say, God, I repent of that, meaning I don't just feel bad for putting that as my trust. But I say I'm willing to uproot that and build my life on an entirely different salvation. Do you see why the gospel is not just the ABCs of Christian life and we move on? Every single one of us and you're Christian or not the battle of everyday life is what is my true salvation what is my true identity what is my true significance what is it the thing that makes me look in the mirror and go because of that I know I can live today whatever that thing is conversion transformation happens when we are willing to look at that and say I'm going to uproot that and replace that with who Jesus Jesus And we can't do that unless we look at Jesus and see the radical nature of his sacrifice and the absolute utter beauty of who he is and what he has done. You hear what I'm saying? You cannot replace your real trust, your real salvation because of a sense of duty like, yeah, I know I need to. You cannot replace that because, you know, you feel guilty like, you know, a good Christian shouldn't do that. The only way that you can daily replace the real salvation of your soul is to be able to look at Jesus and say, that is so much more beautiful. That is so much more amazing. You are so much more radically ravishing than that. So why would I go to that? That's the only way that you would approach your Christian life, this way. Somebody said this way, pleasure and duty, though opposite before. Now that I have seen his beauty, they're opposite no more. The essence of the Christian life. To believe in Jesus, Christian or not, isn't just right set of beliefs. I got it. Got it. mm -hmm, mm -hmm, Okay, I move on. It's not I need to act better, be more moral, be more good. The essence of Christian faith says Jesus Christ lived the life I should have lived. He died the death I should have died. In him, I am more accepted and more loved than I dared hope. Even though I am still messed up, still flawed, still struggling with issues. And I gaze my eyes on who he is and what he has done for me every single second, moment, day of my life until the beauty of who Christ is so captures my heart and satisfies my soul that I look at the things that I'm tempted to make my salvation, make my identity what it really is. It's just a job, just a relationship, good friendship. It's the thing that I have. Money. Money's useful. Money can be good. But none of them will be my ultimate gods. What is it for you? What is it for me? That's the question we wrestle with. All right. Let's look at this text, Acts chapter 16. Brief review from last week and. Uh, Oh, well, let's dig in here. As we look at this text, what is Paul trying to, uh, what is Luke trying to teach us about conversion, about transformation? Well, he intentionally picks out three conversion stories. He could have chosen any, but he picks out three con- conversion stories intentionally to teach us something about Christianity and the essence of what it means to be a Christian. One, I'll put this up there, review from last week. One is that the gospel is for everyone. The gospel is for everyone. What Luke is trying to say here through this text is there's no time type of a person who is more natural to be a christian there's no type of a person that the gospel is more natural to for example there's no racial type Remember, we looked that last week lydia is from thyatira which means she was probably middle eastern the slave girl who we'll look at more carefully today was a slave she could have been from anywhere the jailer was probably a roman soldier which meant he was probably european Luke 2 says there's no type of person. We also also, saw there's no such thing as a moral type. There's no moral type, immoral type, religious type, irreligious type. We'll look at this today. Again, Lydia is a God-fearer who's moral and devout. The girl is demon-possessed. The jailer is spiritually indifferent. He could care less. And yet the gospel comes to all three of them. There's no class type. Lydia owns her own clothing company. She's CEO of her own clothing company. She's wealthy. The slave girl is not just a poor. She lives out on the streets. The gospel is for all of them. It's not for men. Just for men. It's not just for women. The gospel is for all. You know, uh, Do you know that I have a friend who goes to a church in Denver called the Scum of the Earth Church? That's the name. I kid you not. Google today, and when you go home, the Scum of the Earth Church, Colorado, and it'll come up. And their mission statement is, we exist to be a church of the left out and the right brained. Okay, that's their mission. So in Denver, Colorado, there's a church called the Scum of the Earth. I would have chosen a different name, but you know, the Scum of the Earth church, right? And they actually are able to attract and minister to literally people who will not set their foot in most churches. An awesome ministry. One of the clearest examples of what Luke is trying to say, there's no type you go to scum of the other church, there's not a single person there that's not tatted up, pierced all over the place, okay? And, and, and far fringes of artists and musicians. And yet the gospel is reaching them and saying, the gospel is for you. It's for you, okay? Secondly, we saw last week that the gospel brings reconciliation. There's no greater unifying factor on the face of the earth than the gospel. Remember, there's an ancient prayer that Jewish men pray. A little controversial. Jewish men would get up every morning and say, God, I thank you that I wasn't born a... Woman, I wasn't born a slave, and I wasn't born a Gentile. Paul was a Pharisee, which means he would have gotten up every single morning, prayed that prayer, and yet God has a sense of humor. The first three people that come to know Jesus in Church of Philippi are a woman, a slave, and a Gentile. And they're his family now. By the way, this is how you know if you have been truly converted by the gospel. You ready? As you look at your friends and the community of people around you, If you've been truly converted by the gospel, you look around your friends and you go, you know what? If not for Jesus, there's no way we'd be friends. Anybody? Anybody? I know. You're sitting next to him today. You're going, yeah, you. Yeah, that's exactly right. Right? Right? Sandra, but you're married to Carl, though. Right? If the gospel has penetrated you, listen, this is challenging. If the gospel has penetrated you, you look around and you go, if not for Jesus... There's no way we'd be friends, because if not for Jesus, I would disdain you, and you would disdain me. If not for Jesus, our friends, we would look at each other. Our group of friends and your group of friends, we look at each other and go, "Uh uh-uh. In our society, we're not supposed to get along. And yet Jesus brings us together. Do you have friends like that? Or do all of your friends look just like you, act just like you, talk just like you, dress just like you, make his money much like you? make as much money like you You y'all know what i'm saying are there friends in your life are there friends in your life because of jesus that have brought you together some of you sitting there going if not for jesus we'd never be friends the gospel the gospel third the gospel can't be canned hand. Paul does three totally different approaches, right? And all are needed in order to reach three very different people in Philippi. We'll talk more about the other approaches later, but how does Paul engage Lydia? He engages her with a message, a conversation, a discourse. They're doing like a A group's investigating God, Bible study, right? He's sitting there, Paul, we saw this last week, saying, what do you know about the Old Testament? Because she's a god fear, which means she's, she's learning about Judaism. And Paul talks to her and gives her a presentation of the gospel. And remember what happened to Lydia? She what? She responded. And the word responded in Greek literally has a sense of she was attracted to. In other words, there was an aesthetic experience. Here's another way in which you know you've been converted by the gospel. You ready? C.S. Lewis, Reflections of the Psalm says what? He says, when you find a piece of art or piece of music that you love and it blows you away, you got to grab somebody and go, hey, you got to look at this. Hey, you got to check this out. This is an amazing thing. Do you hear the notes? Do you see the lines of the color? Isn't this amazing? And you praise it, you lift it. Why? Because the piece of art needs your praise? No. He says, it's an end in itself. You praise it just because of what it is. Lydia, before this day, Was obeying the law, going to church, reading her Bible, you know, not committing adultery, doing all those things. And after this conversion, did she all of a sudden become a bad person? No, she probably obeyed all the things that she was supposed to. So what's the difference? All the difference in the world. Now when she obeys, it's not duty. Now when she obeys, it's not obligation. Now when she obeys, it's not, oh, do I really? Oh, I guess I have to do that. Because God says, now it's what? It's joy. It's delight. It's praise. It's wonder. It's, ah. Has that happened to you? Has it happened to you? Is obedience to God and living a radical life for Jesus. A drag, a duty, an obligation. Ooh. Or is living for God. Hey, Daniel, you got to check this out, dude. You got to check this out. This is amazing. I told you guys last week how screwed up a lot of Christian circles are. This is like someone going to Grand Canyon, Grand Canyon, to feel good about themselves. That's what we do to God. We go to God. Who goes to Grand Canyon and goes, I need to feel better about myself. and you know, I'm a little discouraged. I need a little pick-me-up. So I think I'm going to go to Grand Canyon. Because looking at the Grand Canyon and the majesty of it all and the wonder of it all, instead of going, oh, my God, we go to Grand Canyon and go, yeah, that was, that was good. I needed that. I feel better about myself. The gospel says we go to God, not just so we could feel better. God could encourage me, pick me up, help me. We go to God because God is an end in itself, and he is beautiful. He is amazing. He is wonderful. He is absolutely extraordinary. We go to God not to feel better. But we go to God because we just go, ah! By the way, that's how I get amazed. I'm not in pain. Ah! That's Amazing! That's amazing. Is that you? Has the gospel transformed you? Huh? Do you go to God? Is the gospel something that's useful? Or do you go to God because he's beautiful? Do you go to God because he's beautiful? All right. And Lydia, the gospel for the more religious. Let's get the slave girl. Woo! That was a 30-minute review, Michael. All right. But we're going to fish today. Luke chooses a slave girl. Look at your Bibles carefully. Look at your Bibles carefully to tell us something about the gospel. Look, if Lydia, if Lydia is a CEO, okay, of her own clothing company, she's wealthy, she's successful. This girl, let me paint her. This girl is a pregnant, drug-addicted teenager on the streets. Did you hear me? Talk about gospel for everyone. This girl is a drug-addicted, pregnant teenager walking on the streets. She is the opposite of Lydia in several ways. And yet the gospel for both. Look how she's... she's, First of all, she's economically opposite. Lydia is financially wealthy. She's independent. By the way, there's no mention of her husband. Do you notice that, ladies? Okay. Which means, you know, some scholars, she was divorced. What it means is that she was an incredibly successful woman at the time who was able to have her own household, own business, and so on and so forth. Right? She's a financial success. Today, uh, you know, like Oprah would be her neighbor. You know, they live in the same complex. They share the same doorman, whatever. Okay, who's the slave girl? The girl's not just poor. She, 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 she would be sleeping under the viaduct on Wacker Drive. That's who she is. She's completely powerless. She's completely exploited. You notice also that she's on the other end of the spectrum with Lydia in regards to morally and spiritually. Lydia is a moral person, spiritual person. She's reading the Bible, going to Sabbath, you know, praying, doing all the things. This girl is demon-possessed. She's not just irreligious. She's demon-possessed. That's about as far in the other direction as you can go. Lydia is quietly seeking God, searching for God, doing the things that she needs to. This slave girl is in spiritual turmoil. She's deeply troubled. By the way, by the way. Everybody look up here. As I was reading this, I I couldn't help but remember what we've also seen throughout the book of Acts is that Christian conversion is a possibility for anyone. Nobody under any circumstances anywhere is beyond the reach of God. Amen? Do you believe that? No, you don't. We don't. We don't. There are people in our lives, for many of us, who we look at and we go, not them. No, no, they're too lost. No, they're too—they're too, too hard-hearted. And for some of us, frankly, it's no—they're too evil. Like we go, why would God want to? Then, of course, we're quickly reminded. Well, why did God want to with with who with 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 us? Do you really believe that Christian conversion is a possibility for anyone? Um, have any of us grown cynical lately? Have we grown cynical, you guys, lately? And, you know, we're looking at some people in our lives, our family members, our coworkers, and we've grown cynical because, because we don't believe that anybody, regardless of how lost, how far away from God, how wicked, how evil they are, that God could reach out. God could reach out and touch them. Somebody says, well, but Peter, they, they don't want to have anything to do with God. They don't want to go to God. They don't want to have anything to do go. with God. Do you know what's amazing about prayer? You could take somebody that doesn't want to have anything to do with God and you could take them to God. So I envision that. See, I envision that. The many women in my life that I'm ministering to who are just hard-hearted towards gospel, hostile towards Christianity, and they go, there's no way. i am set foot inside of a church. Are you kidding me? You know what I envision in my mind? I envisioned the throne room of God and God sitting there and I'm bringing that person to God and saying, "God, guess what? That's what prayer is. You take somebody who has nothing to do with God, you take them to God." Are you doing that? Who are you doing that with? Who are you doing that for? Christian conversion. Possibly before anyone. Okay, uh, look, at, look, at, look, at, look at this carefully, look at this carefully, because I want to spend a bit, just, a, just a, a few minutes on this whole demon possession thing. Uh, notice, notice how the gospel comes into this girl's life. The most interesting thing for us to notice is how, how different this is from Lydia. Again, Lydia's reached through moral, uh, through reason, and through discur- discussion, so on and so forth. This girl is reached through a power encounter, okay? Paul confronts the evil spirit in her and literally commands the evil spirit out of her, and she is saved. And she is healed psychologically. She is healed emotionally. Um, when I was 19, 1989, I went to Africa on a short-term mission trip. I was in Kenya and Tanzania. And uh, you know, before I went, I, I believe sort of up here, yeah, you know, there's demon possession and evil spirits and demons and so on and so forth. I mean, our culture lives in this split world kind of, you know, perspective. On one hand, at one hand, you notice there's kind of an obsession actually with demons and spirits and so on and so forth. Notice the kinds of, again, shows and media about, you know, supernatural vampires all of a sudden are very popular these days. I don't get that. But anyway, there's just another conference, another sermon. You got, and then you got people who are obsessed with tarot cards and, and you know, and, and astrology. I was sitting at Starbucks and a guy that I would you know, getting to know, let's call him David. David goes, Peter, what month were you born? I said, March. He goes, you're a, you're a, what did he say? You're a, Aries? Aries, does anybody know? Pisces, something like that? Pisces? And I go... I said, you believe in that stuff, David? He's like, oh, yeah, dude. He's like, let me tell you. And then he went on. He's like, you know, it's kind of like the earth and energy and we're two-thirds water and soil. And earth is two-thirds water and soil. And water. and I sat there, and I, I was like, wow, that's good. I was, like, really impressed. You know, I was like, wow. And I asked him, I said, you really believe that? He's like, Nah, not really. I'm like, oh, why not waste my time, right? But but I... I, 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 I he He... He, rem- he reminded me that we live in this culture. So in 1989, I'm in Africa, right? And we go to this small village to do ministry there. And the pastor comes and says, hey, by the way, at this morning's worship service, there's a man who has been demon possessed. We had to cast out seven demons out of him, and he's going to be at service today. So I was like, oh, okay, that's good. So we're all sitting in service and this man walks in. By the way, literally stories like he was chained with steel chains and you break them off. Like literally right out of the New Testament, right? So this man walks in and guess where he sits? Right next to me. (laughs) So he's sitting right there next to me. We're worshiping, right? And and, and the whole time, I'm trying to muster up courage. I'm trying to muster up courage and be the Christian, right? Be the Christian. And the only thing I could come think of, the only thing I could think of in this whole time is, is what, what happened in the Bible, which was whenever somebody confronted an evil spirit, what did they do? They asked them for their name, right? So he's sitting next to me, and, 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 and I, I leaned over quietly. I said, what's your name? <laughs> I'm not even exaggerating, right? And then it dawns on me, like he doesn't understand English. <laughs> so I need somebody to speak Swahili, right? Because we're in Kenya. So I had somebody translate. I said, "Ask him what his name is." So he speaks in Swahili, right? And I'm expecting this guy to look over to me and go, "My name is Legion," right? <laughs> Something like that. So I'm sitting there, and he's looking over. He's looking over at me. He's looking over. He's looking over. He's looking over. And nothing happened. I know y'all were waiting for some phenomenal, like, story to this ending. Uh, Ending to this story, nothing happened. We 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 prayed, and afterwards, I talked to the pastor. I said, "So what was that?" And he's telling me, and it was amazing because when the pastor was telling me the story, he was talking as if it's an readily understood thing in their culture. That the reality of demons and satans, and the reality of God, and the reality of spiritual warfare battle—it's a normal, everyday thing. And he's looking at his Westerners and going, Really? What? he was demon-? He's going, What, what, why is that a big deal? Do you not? It's almost like he goes, Do you not read the Bible? <laughs> you know, I'm like, yeah, read the Bible. <laughs> here's what the Bible says. The Bible says, when we read this story, because a lot of us just like far distant, we remove ourselves like, oh, that doesn't make it. That's irrelevant for me. here's what the Bible says. Listen, what the Bible says is the Satan and demons are very real. Thank you very much. The Bible says, I know for some of us it's like, ah, oh, that's hard to wrap our brain around it. The Bible says that there is right now warfare, spiritual warfare going on between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. There's not a square inch of our world today that's not claimed by God and the kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of God and counterclaimed by Satan and his demons. So here's what the Bible says. You need to listen very carefully. The Bible says that when sin entered the world through man's willful disobedience, the entire world became captive to Satan and his demons. And the Bible also calls them powers and principalities. And from the very beginning, when sin entered the world, Satan has been at, by the way, some of you are sitting there going, you don't have to explain that to me. You don't have to convince me. I get it. The Bible says from the very beginning of time, Satan has been at work and yeah, he's wreaking havoc and destruction to God's good creation. And sometimes that affects individuals. So there's personal, spiritual, emotional, psychological things that Satan does. He's also at work though in human communities. If you know anything about racism and you think that's just because people are just born bad, you are so naive. Satan's Working systems, institutions, and human communities to bring racism, injustice, oppression. And the Bible says this, listen, listen, very carefully. Satan has been at work doing this and he's consistently doing it now. So what did Jesus come to do? Was the cross and the work of Christ so that he could forgive me of my sins. And I could spend eternity in heaven with God. If you're a thinking person and you hear that, you go, that is just so weak. What did Jesus do? Look what the authors of New Testament says. The reason the son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. The reason, read it carefully, the reason that the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Jesus came to destroy the devil's work. Let me give you a picture. On the cross, a cosmic battle was fought between Satan, sin, evil, his demons, and Jesus Christ. A cosmic battle was fought, not just for my soul, your soul, our spiritual lives. We can go to heaven. A cosmic battle was fought for all of God's creation. And when Jesus Christ died, yes, but when he rose again from the dead, and we as Christians claim our faith in that, sake of faith in that, when he rose again from the dead, Jesus Christ didn't rise earning victory so that we could be forgiven of our sins and go to heaven. He came and he rose again, defeating Satan, demons, evil, sin, wickedness, and all of his garbage and crap once and for all. That's the work of Jesus. Now, so listen to what the author, uh, Paul, says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 15. So the result of that was that Jesus stripped all the spiritual tyrants in the universe, I love that, of their sham authority at the cross and marched them naked through the streets. Let me give you this picture. Here's what Paul is saying. What Christ did when he won this victory, cosmic battle on the cross for the sins of the entire world. It's like a king who enters battle, wins the battle, and to show his power and his force, he brings along his captives. He brings along, if you will, captives from war, and he marches them through the streets so that the entire city and the country could look at the king and go, "Ho, oh, ho!" that's pretty powerful. So Paul is saying, imagine Jesus Christ, king and Satan and all of his demons, you know, in chains, following behind the king, being displayed throughout the streets for everybody to see. Jesus Christ has risen. Jesus Christ has risen. Jesus Christ has risen. He has fought the cosmic battle with Satan and all of his demons, and he has won the battle. Is that good news? You can clap. You can clap to that. That is great, great news. With this resurrection, the Bible says literally, Jesus disarmed. That means Satan has no authority. But we don't believe it. Do you know why? Guess how the defeated operate? The defeated operate via deception. It's the only Two, leverage that Satan has. He's defeated, so the only thing he could rely on is deception. The Bible calls Satan the father of what? Lies. That's all he does. And you know what? He is so good at it that he's got like 90% of y'all in this morning believing his lies. Satan comes along and says, uh, you, you really think you'll overcome your addiction to pornography? <laughs> Please. You know it. I know it. it ain't never going to happen. And the men in our church say, yep, it's never going to happen. Mm-hmm. Satan comes along to somebody and says, that woman, and says, you think you could actually overcome your addiction? You think you could actually overcome your, your eating disorders? Are you kidding me? Who are you kidding? You've been struggling for four or five years. Satan comes, and we say, yeah, yeah, you're right. See, Satan comes along and says, you think you could actually make a difference in that community? Please, do you know who you're going against? Your aldermen, do you know who you're going against? Those people, the power brokers. And we go, yeah, you're right. Who am I? Who am I? Can I go on? Satan comes to some of you and says, your marriage? Oh, please. You guys, your marriage was dead a long time ago. You stopped loving her. She stopped loving you. And you're sticking it out because you think it's a good Christian thing to do. You know it. She knows it. Just give up, man. What's the? We go, you're right. There's no hope. Satan is defeated. Satan is defeated. He wins and tries to win via deception and lies. How do you battle deception and lies? Via what? And check this out. Jesus Christ, who says, I am the way, I am the truth and the life. Truth lives where? Inside of you. That's why the author of the New Testament says, greater is he who is in me than he was in the world. Is this good news? I know you're sitting there, you're still stuck on the, I'm still believing his lies. I'm still believing lies. I'm going to tell you what my mom used to tell me, which is know whose parents you are. Hold your chin up high, straighten up your back, and walk out there like you know who you are. And I need to tell that to some of you this morning. Know who you are. You are a child of God, and he has his authority, and he has given that authority to you. There is nothing, nothing that you can't overcome. Yeah, I know. You don't believe me. I, that's why I've been praying for you all week this weekend, saying, God, <sighs> working Satan has no authority. None. None. All right. Now I'm done with that. Okay. Notice one other thing. Notice that she doesn't just have demonic masters, she also has who? Human masters. She also has human masters. She's psychologically bound through demons, but she is also, check this out, socially bound through human masters. Some of y'all sitting there going, Oh, I love where you're going with this, Peter. <laughs> she is bound through human masters, she's exploited, she is a victim of social injustice as much as she's a victim of demonic oppression. Why does this matter? Because she is, when she is liberated by the gospel, she is liberated across the board. She's just is liberated from psychological, spiritual, you know. She's liberated socially. She's liberated economically. She is liberated via justice. She's liberated not just personally and spiritually. She's liberated socially from her exploitive economic system. What Paul and Silas are doing here, if you want to pass it, what Paul and Silas are doing here is social action. They're looking at this girl, and they're not only bringing the gospel to her so she should be personally transformed. They're looking at the unjust socioeconomic system that's bounding her, binding her, bound her, binding her, and they're saying, she can't just be delivered personally and be brought right back. She has to be also delivered across the board in every way. Why is that important? Robert Linthicum, Robert Linthicum wrote a book called The City of God, The City of Satan. And in this book, he writes, I was working with poor teenagers in a government housing project when 14-year-old Eva began coming. She was exceptionally beautiful, but her life was a wreck. Crime and drugs all through her broken and extended family. She felt she had no future. The school she attended was terrible. The teachers did nothing but discipline. She had almost no reading and writing skills at the age of 14. But through the youth ministry, she became to a personal relationship with Christ, and hope began to return. Just before I left for the summer, she said to me, Bob, I'm really, really under terrible pressure. A large gang from the projects recruits girls as prostitutes for wealthy white men in the suburbs. They make the money and the girls are like their slaves and they're trying to get me. Lenticum remembers saying, well, the Bible says resist the devil and he will flee from you. So stick with the youth group and keep up your daily prayers and Bible study and you won't fall into temptation. I was naive, he says. I figured if she was a real Christian, real Christians wouldn't give in to temptation. Months later, I returned and found she had stopped coming to the Bible study. I tracked her down, but she would hardly look at me. Look, I gave in. I'm working for them, okay? How, how could you give in like that? I said completely unsympathetically. She said, well, first they beat my father and then my brother who ended up in the hospital. And then they threatened my mother. So I joined. How could you? I cried. Why didn't you go to the police? Bob, she said. Who do you think they are anyway? In one fell swoop. Linthicum, who understood salvation completely in terms of an individual decision, suddenly realized that the only way that he could minister to Eva and minister to the people in Eva's neighborhood was if he went after the unjust social structures, she couldn't go to the police because the police were part of the gang. They were behind the gang. And many of you, for the first time maybe, come to an understanding of why our church desires to be a church that's active. Not because we want... Listen, the world out there basically wants to put the church in two categories. You're a conservative church. That means you preach the gospel. You're about conversion. Bible study, really good discipleship. You do your thing. But you don't care at all about social issues. And then some people go, you're a liberal church. So you just care about social justice issues, helping the poor, marginalized. But man, you don't believe the gospel. You don't believe that God really came in the form of his son. You don't really believe in transformation. If the gospel is to be true, it has to be true. The gospel of Jesus Christ is to have power and witness in our world today. It has to. Why? Because the gospel is. We're not making stuff up. The gospel is holistic. Jesus Christ comes into this world. And he brings salvation. Not just to personal souls. He brings salvation to every part of our creation that's gone awry because of sin. So yes, there's personal salvation. Personal spiritual transformation. And that's where it begins. It's phenomenal. But we don't end there. We look at our world and we go, what are the areas of brokenness that need healing and the transformative power of God? And because we are gospel-believing people, not just because we want to be active and social just for the sake of that, not just because we think we need to be a good person by doing things, because we believe that the gospel brings holistic healing across the board, we get involved. Amen? We get involved. We get involved. So Paul and Silas are doing. And looking at this girl, let me give you an example. Let me give you an example. Two examples. One example. Rusty and Lynette who are in Thailand. I told you guys about them last week. Rusty and Thailand have started this Bible study. There's a group of about 14, 15 teenage girls in Thailand who used to be prostitutes. Why are they prostitutes? They need to process economic sustenance for their families. 14, 15, 16-year-old girls in Thailand. They've come to know Jesus via outreach, Bible study, discipleship. But check this out. Every single day, there's some of them, every single day, some of them could either go one way or another. They could say, I can no longer provide for my family, and I need to go and do whatever I need to do. So Rusty and Lynette and the rest of them, what are they doing? They're saying, what can we do to provide a viable economic structure system so that these young girls who know Jesus, love Jesus, will be able to provide for their families? That, my friends, is the whole gospel. That's the whole gospel. As we look at our community, as we look at our city. How do we go about doing that? How do we go about doing that? Can I just be your pa- I, I am your pastor. I want to pastor you this morning. I want to pastor you this morning. Because listen. Th- th- it makes me really sad. It breaks my heart when I see Christians. Knowing that, understanding that. And get involved in issues of holistic gospel proclamation. But do it for all the wrong reasons. I see some people. I see some people doing it and their approach pretty much is the way that I'm going to fix some brokenness in my own heart is by fixing other people. You can't fix your brokenness by fixing other people. The only thing that can fix you is Jesus. And as your pastor, I'm speaking to some of you this morning and saying you're involved in justice issues and you're passionate. But if it is driven out of a desire to find some sort of healing and meaning in life, I'm telling you that's a dead end. For some of us, we do it out of guilt. And we even have a terminology for it, right? White guilt, we call it. Asians are affected by, it. it's a whole, you know what, why, why was it me and not them? Why am I grow, why did I grow up in this privilege? Why did I grow up so much? Why did I grow up so much? And why, and, and we get all just bogged down by guilt. And we just, we just do things out of guilt and we do things so that we can alleviate our guilt. And for some of us, it's kind of the opposite of that. And that is, we do it out of paternalism, you know? We kind of do it because we feel sorry for them. And so we need to do something for them. And so we say maybe we mean well, but we do it. And let me tell you something. For all of us, for all of us, can I bring us back to the cross? Can I bring us back to the cross? Because here's a wonderful thing about the cross, see? The cross levels a playing field because when we come to the cross, when we come to the cross, there is no differentiation between them and us. We are them. And they are us. We come to the cross every single day of our lives because the cross of Jesus Christ says everybody comes to the cross in the same way. Sinners in need of grace. doesn't matter how educated you are. doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter what you have. When we actually come to the cross and allow the cross to penetrate and melt our hearts, we can't possibly look at the homeless folks in our community and say, well, I am going to help them because we come to the cross and we realize they are us you hearing me. They are us. And so when we come to the cross, we realize nobody leans up against the cross and say, well, you know, I'm better. I'm more educated. i have more resources than you. We come to the cross and we realize every single one of us kneels at the foot of the cross and we say there's room for anyone. So if before we get up and say, Yes, let's go out there and change the world, I ask you, I plead with you, come to the cross until you recognize God, they are us and we are them. And all of us come to you desperately in need of your grace. And we walk away not saying, I will help you, but we walk away saying, We share common humanity. Amen. It's not psychology. It's not working yourself up to a moral fervor. It's coming to the cross until the cross of Jesus Christ melts your heart. And when the cross melts your heart, trust me, you cannot help but get up and overwhelmed and outpouring of, He has done that for me! He has done that for me! 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 It's so the one, I'm not out there doing things to prove myself, to find identity, to find significance. I'm not doing out there to fix myself. I'm doing these things because I realize all of those things I have in Jesus. So I'm freed up in humility and in confident joy to holistically preach the gospel. Is that good news? That's good news. All right. Look at the guy. Look at the guy. We're gonna finish with the guy. We're gonna finish with the guy. Look at the jailer. Look at the jailer. All right. Last we have the guy. We have a man. Everything's in here. Even even a guy is saved. Even a man. Even the men are saved. The jailer is almost certainly a Roman soldier. How do we know? All civil service jobs were given to soldiers, and they were nice jobs. Nice jobs. Okay. Now, when you look carefully at his life, you realize his life is neither the success of Lydia nor the mess of the slave girl. Okay. His life is neither the success of Lydia. Or the... If Lydia works in the loop. And the slave girl works on the streets. The jailer, he lives in Humboldt Park. And he works at the post office. Okay, He's a blue-collar, everyday, ex-GI guy. But the thing that I want you to notice is he's spiritually indifferent. He's spiritually indifferent. He's not seeking, searching. He's not asking questions about what does it mean to be saved. He's not also in spiritual turmoil, absolutely devastated and broken. This guy is going about it doing his everyday job. So how do you bring the gospel to him? Check this out. Paul brings the gospel To Lydia, hey, what do you know about the Old Testament? Paul brings the gospel to the slave girl. How do you bring the gospel to someone who's spiritually indifferent? Listen, you don't bring the gospel by telling somebody who doesn't give a rip about Jesus. How do you do it? You show the gospel to somebody who doesn't give a rip about Jesus. Paul and Silas do it in two ways. One. Paul and Silas have been beaten by rods, which means that they would have been bleeding. Their backs totally torn out. They're bleeding. Not only that, they're dripping with blood. And, and you notice, you know what the jailer should have done? Kids, check this out. As a jailer, as a jailer, it was part of his responsibility to bandage and to care for his, his prisoners when they came. He doesn't even do it. He doesn't even. He is callous. He 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 is totally callous. They're, not only that, not only does he not care for them, but he tortures them. He puts their feet in stocks. Okay? It's one of these, you know, old kind of things. Their feet would been spread way apart. So here they are. Their backs are dripping with blood. Their backs are dripping with blood, okay? And, and their, their feet are, are apart. And their, feet, their hands are apart. And they're absolutely, they're absolutely in pain. And what are Paul and Silas doing? They're amazing grace. How sweet the sound. And no, not like the way we do it, you know? Like, oh, me. I hate zinc, Grace, I think how sometimes the sound, you know, no, they're there and they're singing it. They're singing it, and, and the prisoner and the jailer is looking at them, going, what other oh, prisoners looking at, them going, what? And here's what they see that just blows him away. He sees in the jailer that his joy is rooted in something so deep that regardless of what you took away. Take away my money. Take away my relationship. Take away my job. Take away even my life. He says, my joy is still there. The jailer sees a Christian whose joy is rooted in something so deep and so profound that no matter what you took away, the joy is still there. And he says the heck is that second thing when the earthquake happens he freaks out why according to the law and custom at the time if a prisoner under your care escaped the jailer you were executed so here's the thing he's an xgi he's a man of honor he doesn't want to be humiliated he doesn't want to be executed for letting a slave get away so what does he do he draws his sword and he says i'm gonna die because i don't want to face public humiliation now here's the thing here's the thing what does Paul and Silas do? Oh, stop! Stop! Don't kill yourself! Don't kill yourself! He's going. What? What? Why? 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 He's like, "We're all here. We're all here." What about the other prisoners? No, no, no. They're all here too. They're all here too. Here, yeah, 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 Really, really? Yeah, we're all here. We're all here. Chill out, man. Put the sword away. Put the sword away. Put the sword away. What? What? And he looks at, him, and not only does he enormous joy and suffering. You know what he sees? He sees somebody. Check this out. Repaying evil with good. He sees somebody repaying evil with good. Think about what I just said in the context of our culture and our world today. Of What would happen if the unbelieving world saw Christians repaying? Now, here's the thing. If I'm the jailer, if, if, if I'm Paul and Silas, you know what I'm doing? I'm messing around with him because I came. My back is tattered, you know, I'm in pain. He tortures me, right? And I'm going draw that sword a little longer little longer, a little closer, a little closer. Where I'm going, he's going, but the other prisoners. I go, sorry, yeah, the other prisoners. Oh, no, 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 I'm just kidding. I'm playing with him. I'm playing with him. But what does Paul do? Paul says, oh, no, we are all still here. And Paul says, you cheated me in such a way that I was absolutely nothing. And my life meant nothing. You were supposed to bandage me, take care of me. You were supposed to not torture me, but watch over me. And yet you do all those things. And here's what I'm going to do in return. I'm going to repay your evil, your injustice with what? With good. Why? How? A new pattern for living had entered Paul and Silas' life. Because you and I look at that and go, that is impossible. How do we do that? A new pattern for living. This pattern for living invades their life in the person of who? Person of who? Church, tell me. Person of who? Jesus. Jesus Christ, who is Jesus? Jesus Christ, the ultimate example of someone who looks out at his torturers, who looks out at his killers, and he says, Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. That Jesus had invaded Paul and Silas's life. And they're able to look at this man. And say, I choose to repay your evil and your wickedness with good. And he looks at Paul and Silas and says, I've never seen anything like it. How do you do this? What has happened to you? He looks at, can I, let me just form it in the form of a question as a challenge for us today. When was the last time, when was the last time? somebody that you know who's not a Christian, that you've been friends with, spent time with, when was the last time a non-Christian came up to you and said, tell me, how is it that you live such a beautiful life? Tell me, uh, how is it that under that kind of suffering and circumstances that would literally drive anybody just batty and crazy and deny God and walk away, how is it that in the midst of that, that you have joy that is so deep that's unexplainable? how is it, when was the last time somebody came up to you and said, how is it that I gossip about you, I slander about you, I treat you like crap, I treat you like dirt, I do all these things. How is it that every single time I do that, you don't come back at me with gossip slander, you don't come back at me with the same force of evil hatred, but how is it that you continue to repay me with God? Church, when was the last time somebody who didn't give a rip about the gospel and you couldn't say, you need Jesus. When was the last time somebody couldn't rip about the gospel and you couldn't tell them, came to you and said, show me. Show me. Show me. Why are you the way you are? Can I end on an encouraging note? Do you like stories? (laughs) Barnabas, where are you? I'm going to read you a story that I read from a book. And I'm also going to read you a story of a couple in our church who are going through something right now. William Williman, who is over at Duke, phenomenal scholar, has written some wonderful things. Writes, early in my ministry, a woman in my church had given birth. And I've been told that there were problems with the birth. The couple sat in the room. By the way, y'all need to pray for me because I don't think I'm going to get through the second email without crying, okay? So if I start crying, somebody shout out, stop it, Peter. For those of us Asians, we know, you know what I'm talking about, right? Stop in Korean is dook, dook. One word, dook, which is stop crying. My mom, dook. That's why I'm emotionally, you know, messed up. Anyway. And that's why I cry so much. Anyway, back to the letter. Okay. Sorry. So early in my ministry, a woman in my church had given birth, and I had been told that there were problems with the birth. The couple sat in the hospital room waiting for the doctor. Shortly after I arrived, the doctor appeared and sat down with the new parents. And he said to them, the doctor, you have a new baby boy, but there's some problems your child has been born with Down syndrome. And your baby also has a minor and correctable respiratory condition. My recommendation is that you consider letting nature take its course. Then in a few days there shouldn't be any problem. The couple seemed confused by what the doctor told them. Look, if the condition is easily corrected, then we want it corrected, the husband said, and the wife immediately nodded in agreement. You- The doctor said, you must understand, look, that numerous studies show that parents who keep these children have high degree of marital stress. And is it fair for you to bring this sort of suffering on your other two children, said the doctor? It was a mention of the word suffering that the doctor's word had finally begun to make sense to the woman suffering. She said, our children have had every advantage in the world and they've never really known suffering. They've never really had an opportunity to know it. And I don't know if it's God's hand is in this or in what way God's hand is in this. But I could certainly see why it would make perfect sense for a child like this to be born into a family like ours. Our children will do just fine. As a matter of fact, the more I think about it, it's a great opportunity for us. The doctor looked absolutely perplexed. He abruptly departed and I followed him into the hall and turned and he turned to me and said, Reverend, you need to talk some sense into that family. William Williman says the couple was using reason, but it was reasoning that was foreign to the doctor. For me, it was a vivid depiction of the way in which the church at its best is in the business of teaching a different language from that of the world, a different language the church, through the history, through the story of Jesus, teaches a different language whereby words like suffering, words that are irredeemably negative in our culture, they change the very substance. Here was a couple who had listened to the ultimate story the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. For them, the ultimate story in which suffering could be reasonably redempted. How do you do that? How do you have the power to do that? How do you have the power to look at a child? And when the world says, you know, just let take its course, how do you have the power to go, oh, no, oh, no, oh, no, 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 we're not, we're not. Rusty and Lynette are missionaries to Thailand. A couple of weeks ago, they gave birth to their baby girl who was born at two and a half pounds. She came weeks too early. And when I got this letter, the, we're keeping regular updates, my mind immediately went to this letter because you know what? It was almost as if Rusty and Lynette were this couple sitting here. They're in Cheng Rai in Thailand. And this is what they wrote. Dear loved ones, yesterday was such a special day. We were both able to spend hours holding little olive on our chest, spending time talking to her, singing over her. We've been overwhelmed by emails, phone calls, Facebook messages, and visitors. We're being held up by the prayers of so many we know and love, and also by many we don't even know personally. Today's been like each day so far since the little Isle of Hope has arrived, filled with moments of joy, moments of fear, moments of uncertainty, sadness, hope, and thankfulness. This morning, she had an ultrasound done to assess the level of intracranial cranial hemorrhage that she had the other night. There are four levels, one being the least severe with long-term complications and four being the most serious and highest risk of long-term complications. Olive had level four, intracranial hemorrhage. The doctors are telling us that if she makes it, she will certainly have serious cognitive and motor damage, mentally handicapped, cerebral palsy, and the list will go on. There's also high risk of blindness due to high concentrations of oxygen. They've had to keep her on. She is still anemic, so she's getting blood transfusions. Our heart's aching for this little one. Part of us is also hoping and longing to see a miracle. Another part of us feels very afraid of all the unknowns to come. She is at every possible complication and to the most severe level thus far. And yet there's something in me that keeps holding on to some sort of hope. Another part of me that doesn't want her little body to suffer any longer. Thoughts are going and coming in all directions. We were asked today if we want them to continue aggressive treatment measures or if we would like to stop and simply let her go. Culturally in Thailand, children with disabilities are looked down upon. I remember volunteering at an orphanage outside of Bangkok eight years ago and watching monks come and visit the hundreds of mentally handicapped children, telling them, if you do better in this life, then your next life will be better. Earlier in the week, our doctor, a Thai friend, and two nurses sat down for a meeting and asked if we wanted to go ahead and give Olive platelets that she needed and a new antibiotic or if we would like to withhold the treatment and let her go. They all encouraged us to let her go and withhold the treatment and said she would have about a week before her little body would shut down. They told us that if she survived, she was handicapped and possibly blind. It would be unfair to her. We cried a lot during that meeting and prayed and went with our hearts to continue treatment and commit caring for her. Unless we come to a point where we feel her little body can't undergo any more aggressive treatment. And I want you to listen to what the gospel does. We are willing and ready to care for a little girl with handicaps if Jesus chooses to give her to us. Jesus has drawn us closer and closer to him through this journey. Our only place to find hope in this circumstance. We're praying for peace to surround us in the midst of this chaos and worry. We know Jesus has a plan. It has just been a day where trusting that plan feels more difficult. And then they say, no matter the outcome, we will continue to serve him. The one who entrusted Olive to us as a gift if you are not a Christian or you're a Christian you're sitting here going how, how is it possible that these people could do that how, how in the way it doesn't make any sense where do they find courage where do they find... here's what's happened to them and here's what the jailer saw a story had invaded their lives a new story A new story that gives context to their personal story, which is Jesus Christ comes and he suffers and he dies. But in his suffering and death, Jesus says suffering is not the end. Death is not the end. Death and suffering will not have the ultimate end. There is resurrection coming. And for those who suffer in this world, and for those who are going through this, the promise of the gospel is not someday when you go to heaven, Jesus Christ will console you and say, there, there, you've suffered so much. Jesus Christ and the promise of the gospel that gives hope to Rusty and Lynette and this young couple is to say, suffering is not irredeemably negative. Suffering led to life. Suffering leads to resurrection. There is resurrection coming. There's restoration coming. There's renewal coming for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so we approach this life. When we suffer and go through it without, without, without dis- discouragement, disappointment that says there is no hope. When we go through things in this life, Rusty and Lynette are not super spiritual Christians. They're not better than you or me. They're literally focusing on the cross and the cross that brought about resurrection. And they're saying... Suffering will not have its last word. Pain, suffering will not have its last word. And this isn't some pie in the sky hope that says, you know, I just sort of hope that it's true. Suffering will not have its last word because the suffering, crucifixion, and death of Jesus Christ at the resurrection for all. Your heads with me. The hope of the Christian life. It's not a pie in the sky. You know, I hope so. I, I, I somehow hope that whatever we experience in this life will somehow, I, I hope. The hope of the Christian life, my friends, is based on rock, solid, concrete fact that Jesus Christ conquered sin and death and rose again and rules today as King and as Lord. The hope of the Christian is not that this life is the end all and be all. The hope of the Christian is that the risen king, Jesus, is coming back again to renew and to restore and to heal and to redeem everything that was marred by sin. Our story has come under the ultimate story of the suffering, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. 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 We're going to sing this last song. And I want you to You do always pay attention to the words and the lyrics of the song. And I don't want you to sing this as a sort of, I hope God, I wish it was true. Sing this from the bottom of your heart. Shout it out. Lift your hands and your voices that regardless of what it is that we are going through, our hope, our hope, our hope, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. My prayer for you, church, is that God will give you a song in the night. That as you leave this place, that you would be men and women whose joy is rooted in something So deep and so profound and so unchanging that no matter what the world takes away. That your joy will be rooted in something so deep that your life will proclaim of Christ. This morning, pastoral staff and we will be up here. And our prayer team will be up here. To pray for you. Please come up. Saying, Peter, I'm at my wit's end. I just need some prayer. We want to be able to do that for you, church, before you leave today. As you go, may the Spirit of God, who has spoken, continue to speak. Live your life. Live your life knowing that he is with you. He goes before you, and he goes beside you. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen and amen. Please come up if you need prayer, pastoral staff, prayer team. Please come on up.